3, verses 1 through 5. Bless Jehovah, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless Jehovah, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy desire with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagle. Well, we just began this series that Lord willing will extend through uh, April on Psalm 103. And I freely confess without any reservation that I love the Psalms and I love 103 in particular. And it's expressly stated that it is a Psalm of David. But I'm focusing again on, on these words of the ver first verse, bless Jehovah. O oh, my soul and all that is within me. What is, what is the soul? What is David referring to when he speaks to himself in this way? Speaks to his soul. He's talking, as we said last week, talking with himself, communicating, communing with himself. As he says in another psalm, communing with his heart upon his own bed, musing, meditating. But what is the soul? I believe that at least it's fair to say that it is that which he iterates in the last part of this line when he says, all that is within me. Bless Jehovah, O my soul, and all that is within me. The soul, we're told by some writers, is the seat of the will and affections. And I would ask, is that not another way of saying all that is within me? Bless Jehovah, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. I believe that it contains, speaks of the heart and the mind in all our strength and all our might, as well as speaking of the soul. You remember when the young scribe came up to Christ and he asked him, he said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Christ said to him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is the primary commandment, he responds. This is the great commandment, to love God, to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your might. All that is within you, David said. All that is within you. I believe that it's not unfair to suggest that a New Testament parallel of Psalm 103, maybe that found in what is known as the Magnificat of Mary in Luke 1:46. Perhaps you'll recall how that she went to visit Elizabeth, who was with child, as they say. And that child, of course, was 
John the Baptist, but she went to greet her. And when Elizabeth saw her, she recognized something about her cousin. She recognized that in some spiritual way, it says that she was filled, Elizabeth that is, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out unto Mary, a blessing upon her. But Mary's response, that is known as the Magnificat, because of that word magnify that's contained in it. Mary said, my soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Is this not tantamount to David's Magnificat, if we can put it that way in Psalm 103? Is this not a, a New Testament parallel? perhaps even somewhat of an imitation. It is indeed Mary's reply to the congratulations of Elizabeth. Luke does not say, Luke does not say that Mary was filled with the Spirit, but he does say that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. One writer suggests that at this epoch of her life, Mary dwelt habitually in a divine atmosphere. The Son of God was being formed in her womb. She habitually dwelt in a divine atmosphere whilst the inspiration of Elizabeth was only momentary. Her first word, Mary's first word in response was the Greek, of course, in our scriptures, for magnifies. Fully expresses this state of her soul, I believe. That she was living, existing in this divine atmosphere. And she cries out, my soul doth magnify the Lord. We touched on that last week about magnifying the Lord, magnifying the name of Jehovah. And how can we do that? Well, this suggests that perhaps we could do it if we dwelt more habitually in a divine atmosphere. As this writer suggests that Mary was doing at this epoch of her life. But hear this statement further from this writer, Godet. He said, in addition, he said, in what, in what, indeed, does the magnifying of the divine being consist? In what does it consist? If not in giving him, by constant adoration, a larger place in one's own heart and in the hearts of men, a larger place. Surely we must all confess and admit that we have more room in our hearts for God, more room in our hearts for Jesus Christ than what we have been giving him. And this writer simply suggests that magnifying the divine being consists of this, of giving a larger place in one's heart. Bless Jehovah, O oh my soul. Bless Jehovah, O oh my heart. All my strength, my mind, my thoughts, all that is within me, bless his holy name. 
Does not all that is within me rather duplicate as I've suggested, O oh my soul? Is it not a form of repetition? With all your heart, with all thy heart, soul and might. And of course, Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy 6.4, where we find God through Moses speaking to his people here, he said, here, O Israel, Jehovah our God is one Jehovah, and thou shalt love Jehovah thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might, everything. We, we are not to refrain from giving God anything of ourselves. All that is within us. All that is within me. Deuteronomy, again, in 10.12, we read a repetition of this. And now, Israel, what doth Jehovah thy God require of thee but to fear Jehovah thy God and with all thy heart and with all thy soul to keep the commandments of Jehovah and his statutes, which I command thee, Moses said, this day for thy good. All thy heart and soul, all thy mind and all thy strength, all that is within you, all that is within me. Bless Jehovah. We are told again, Serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. In Deuteronomy 11:13, and again in 13:3, and once more in 26:16, it's not a light thing. God is, if I can say this without being irreverent, He's kind of hammering us with this to hammer it into our minds, so that we can bless Jehovah with all of our minds as well as all of our heart, all of our soul. But he says this again and again. Three more times he says it in Deuteronomy 30 in the second verse, in the sixth verse, in the tenth verse. Remember these things. I'm speaking them to you over and over again that you remember them and meditate upon them and digest them. And even from Moses' successor, Joshua, in 22.5 of the book of Joshua, we see these same words, basically, that we are to love God, we are to bless God, we are to magnify God with all our heart. We are to fear him, we are to obey him with all our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength. All that we have. All that we have, we are to render unto God. In the New Testament, we see in the synoptics, when Christ was asked, and we've already mentioned this once, but which is the great commandment? Which is the first commandment? And Christ repeated that from Deuteronomy 6, 4, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul with all thy mind, and Mark adds, and with all thy strength. Everything. Don't keep anything from God. He doesn't keep anything from us. Soul. 
the word in the Hebrew nephesh. We're told by some authorities refers to the animal life or that principle by which every animal according to its kind lives hence life many times that word is translated life rather than soul I think more often than not it is soul but it is translated many many times life it's that vital principle animal spirit which is often translated soul or spirit we're reminded of that occasion in the life of Elijah in 1st Kings 17 I'd like to remind you of that by reading it to you 1st Kings 17 that woman of Zarephath we're told at verse 17 of that 17th chapter, and it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. This is the woman of uh, Zarephath that, that fed the prophets. And that his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, what have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Thou art come unto me to bring my sin to remembrance and to slay my son. And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into the chamber where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto Jehovah and said, O Jehovah, my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto Jehovah and said, O Jehovah, my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And Jehovah hearkened unto the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came unto him again or into him again and he revived. Of course, we know that God is well able to do that. We know that he breathed the breath of life into Adam and he became a living soul. This confluence of the use of this word for life and for soul. This is just an example of how it's employed. Speaking of soul, speaking of life in the context. Life, spirit, animus is said to live. Let my soul live, David spoke in Psalm 119 and it shall praise thee. Let my soul live, the connection of soul and life. And we read about it in Isaiah 53 of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah speaks prophetically of Christ and his sacrifice and satisfying the justice of God, being made sin for us. But we read that his soul was poured out. His soul was poured out as if, as if along with the blood, his soul was poured out. Along with the life, his soul, Isaiah says, was poured out because he poured out his soul unto death. Soul, the seat of will and purpose. 
life, the soul, all that is within us. We are to strive and seek to bless God. Oh, my soul, bless God with all that is within us. Bless Jehovah, oh, my soul. Oh, my soul. In the New Testament, we find that the word that is employed in a similar fashion for both life and soul is the Greek word suke. But what about what we find in the New Testament? And of course, it's in reality also in the narratives of the Old Testament. What about the word die suke? Die suke. That's the word employed by James in James 1.8, the double-minded man. And it could be literally rendered the double-souled man, the double-life man, the double-minded man that James speaks of. And this man is like the two-faced man that John Bunyan speaks of in Pilgrim's Progress. You remember what he called this man? Mr. Facing Both Ways. That's what it is to be double-minded, to be double-souled, to be looking both ways, facing both ways. Mr. Facing Both Ways, Bunyan says, came from the town of Fair Speech. And he was among the friends, acquaintances, maybe even relatives. I believe many of them were intended by Bunyan to be relatives by birth. All of them relatives of Mr. Byans. And the friends listed from this town of Fair Speech, their names are Lord Turnabout. Surely he had that same DNA as Mr. Byans. And as Mr. Facing Both Ways, Lord Time Server. We read in Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiasticus, from the Apocrypha, we read these words. And they're not inspired. They're not part of the canon. I just make that point. But nonetheless, some of the wisdom there is, is good for us. To know, but he says in 2.12, Woe to the craven hearts and drooping hands, to the sinner who treads a double path. Mr. Facing Both Ways. Mr. Byans, Mr. Lord Turnabout, and Lord Time Server. And I would ask, because it came to my mind, and I asked myself, and I asked us tonight, is this not what Rome is teaching? Doesn't Rome teach this? I'm not saying they're the only ones, but is this not what they're teaching when basically their teaching says that their Christians, their people, can follow either or both the Son of God or the Mother of God? Facing both ways. Looking both ways. And having your cake and eating it too, I suppose. There are all kinds of metaphors, but what we have here of necessity for this person, this double-minded man, not only double-minded, but he has a divided heart. 
I remind you that I said that literally that word would be double-souled. He has a divided heart, double-mindedness, differing wills. What are buy-ins? It's a word that's not used very much anymore, I don't believe. But it refers to a subordinate end, a subordinate goal end in that way. A goal, a subordinate goal or end, especially a selfish motive. Private and end or interest, secret purpose, selfish advantage. You remember how the Pharisees were called by our Lord Jesus Christ himself, named by God, hypocrites, double-minded men, double-willed men, divided heart men. If they could stand, and they did, crying out, bless Jehovah, O my soul, while their heart is looking and loving to be seen of men as Christ charged them with. That's not how God wants his people to be. He has loved us with an everlasting love. We read in that well-known John 3:16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish but have life eternal, life everlasting. God so loved the world. And Paul expands on that, if we can put it that way, when he says in Romans 8 of God, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? You see the love of God expressed there. He that spared not his own son. God wants his people to imitate him, does he not? Be ye holy, for I am holy. Be ye loving, for I am loving. And he spared not his own son. And he would have us to not spare any of our sins. Not to spare any. Perhaps not even to spare our sons or daughters or kinsmen. Buy-ins, an example that struck me about buy-ins and the selfishness involved. And I'm not talking about all quarterbacks, but it just struck me that we have perhaps an example in a football quarterback that they've got it in their uh, power or authority to, to determine whether they're going to run with the ball or whether they're going to pass it to this wide receiver and make a hero out of him. Or maybe they can just keep it and run with it if they see an opening and, and make a hero out of themselves. You see what I'm suggesting? I'm not, I don't know, I don't watch professional football, but I'm just saying that it struck me as an example of where there could be selfish motives. And nobody would really know except that man himself. But God knows our motives. He knows our hearts. He knows our souls. He knows our minds. And he calls upon us. Bless God, bless me, bless Jehovah. Oh, with your soul, your heart, your mind, and your strength. 
George Offer, I, I'm not, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but the editor of Bunyan's works, provided a note, a footnote, in Bunyan's works surrounding a statement made by Christian to buy-ins in that allegory. He said to buy-ins, this is Christian talking to buy-ins, he said, sir, you talk as if you knew something more than all the world does. And the editor's pen reacted by saying, what is this something that buy-ins knew more than all the world? What is it he knew more than all the world? How to unite heaven and hell? How to serve God and mammon? How to be a Christian and a hypocrite at the same time? Oh, the depth, this is the quote continued, oh, the depth of the depravity of the human heart. Alas, how many similar characters now exist with two tongues in one mouth, looking one way and rowing another. Now, he made that comment because in the page preceding, Bayens had admitted, saying, my great-grandfather was but a waterman looking one way and rowing another. And I got most of my estate by the same occupation, looking two ways, Mr. Facing Both Ways, Mr. Buy-ins, Mr. Hypocrite. I got my estate, most of it, by that same occupation. We could think of scriptural examples of this, and the Lord used very mightily in bringing me to himself years ago that text in uh, Matthew about Peter walking on the water. You remember what happened? And I like to point out to people when they criticize Peter, I like to ask them if they ever walked on water. <laughs> but Peter walked on water and he was looking at Christ. He was walking toward Christ. And then he took his eye off of Christ, or at least he took one eye off of him. And he looked at the winds and the waves, and he became fearful. Looking at the winds and the waves, he became double-minded. He became double-eyed, or cross-eyed maybe, but he's looking at Christ, but he's turning his gaze over to the winds and the waves, taking his thoughts, his mind, his heart perhaps, off of Christ. Perhaps Peter was, at least for that moment, a mister facing both ways himself. His heart was divided. He feared for his life. Such in constancy, Bengal says, winds up in hypocrisy or abandonment to sin. Small wonder that he eventually denied Christ. But God is gracious, isn't he? And he forgave Peter and drew him back to himself. The lamp of the body is the eye. Christ teaches us in Matthew 6. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body is full of darkness. No man can serve two masters. Now, of course, we just heard that Mr. Byans 
suggested that these people could serve God and mammon. They could serve two masters. They obviously had evil eyes. The single eye, namely the light that is in thee, the lamp of the mind, the eye of the soul. Our Lord Jesus Christ rebuking hypocrites refers to Isaiah 29 and verse 13 when he said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, for as much as this people draw nigh unto me and with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart from me. These are double-minded people, hypocrites, facing two ways, facing both ways, their eyes not single. So many engaged in what we know of as nominal Christianity in name only, Christians in name only. But they take the name and they profess. And we can't judge except by their fruit, but God is their judge. God, through Isaiah, began Isaiah's prophecy in the very first chapter, speaking to this issue, when he said, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Jehovah has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider. By today's, in today's Christian society, they would be these nominal Christians. They would be Christians in name only, gathering in many churches in our day. But again, we don't know who they are, and we're not supposed to go around trying to pick them out either. Imagine that we can recognize them. But there are those that Isaiah spoke of with their mouths and their lips honoring God. But they have removed their hearts far from him. If we, if we, professing Christians, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, believers in our sovereign God, God, in his mercy and grace, his eternal love, if we have sincere, simple, single hearts this evening, praise God, they're his gifts to us. We didn't make them, he did. Those just recently delivered from bondage in the Old Testament narratives, you remember how that they so quickly desired to return for the leeks and the onions and so on. In Numbers 11, we read about this mixed multitude that was among those people that God had delivered from bondage in Egypt. And the mixed multitude that was among them lusted exceedingly. Now today, professing Christians may not lust for leeks and onions, but surely they lust for many things if they have divided hearts, if they are double-minded. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt for naught, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic 
but now our soul is dried away. There's nothing at all save this manna to look upon. How many times? I didn't try to count them, but I know it's a number of times that we read about these crossing the wilderness and so on. It cried out, complained, murmured is the word that's used over and over again. They murmured about what God had brought them to and forgot all about the deliverance from the bondage in Egypt. They were ready to go back. How many times did they behave like this? It's sad and it's terrible and it's many. And this dividedness was resurrected again and again. We see it even in what Mark's bringing us from Galatians. Those ready to give up the gospel that has saved them. Those allowing themselves to be tempted. I don't know how many may have been successfully taken away from the church of Jesus Christ and going back to Judaism. But there are many that were tempted and Paul was trying to stop them from doing what they were doing. But those Galatians are an example. They were quite ready, some of them at least, to turn back to Judaism. What else, what else can we call that but being willing to return to the leeks and the onions? Being ready to go back to Egypt, to their bondage. They were ready to place themselves in bondage, were they not, to the law, in bondage to circumcision, in bondage to tradition? <coughs> they hadn't learned anything from the ancestors that we read about, their ancestors that we read about in Numbers, in the Old Testament, in the Torah. Mark mentioned also this morning Janus or Janus, a god of Roman mythology. I couldn't resist bringing that up because it was so applicable. But this god of mythology having two faces. One looking to the future, the other looking to the past. <laughs> Moses was trying uh, through God to, to have these people be looking to the future, what God promised them. And so many of them were looking to the past, back to Egypt, in bondage, again, to the leeks and the onions. Often looking to the past. They were acting like this mythological god with two faces. Remember how even before the spies were sent out, we already looked at that in Numbers 11. They were crying for Egypt again. But you remember just a couple chapters later how that Moses, under God's direction, appointed a man from each tribe. I think some of the translations say a prince from each tribe, each of the 12 tribes, were to go spy out the land that God had promised to them. Go spy it out, God told Moses. So he sent these 12 to go spy out the land. And what did they find? Ten of them came back and complained and murmured, oh, the, the men there are giants and the walls are 500 feet high. They came back with all this hyperbolic language 
an exaggeration because they feared and they weren't trusting God. Only two out of the 12. If I can paraphrase their thinking, basically argued with them, God has promised this land. Let us go and take it. It's his promise to us. But they didn't succeed in their argument. The 10 carried the day, if we can put it that way. And that's the reason that they ended up 40 years in the wilderness. And I would just say to us and pray, may God give us the grace of faith day by day, growing faith, increasing faith, Oh, Lord, even the disciples of Christ said, Lord, increase our faith. And we need to do that every day. We need to pray for this faith that God gave to Joshua and Caleb. Let us go take it. Take God's promises. They had single eyes. Joshua and Caleb had single eyes. They saw something different than the ten spies. May God grant that we have single eyes. Looking unto Jesus, our champion. Looking forward to that day when in heaven, with Joshua and with Caleb, we'll sing with David, bless Jehovah, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank thee for that great love that we can't explain, but thou hast given us the gift of faith to apprehend it. We thank thee for that love that spared not thine own son, but delivered him up for us that we might have all things through Christ, through his blood. We thank thee and praise thee through Jesus Christ. Amen. Stand for the benediction, please. From Psalm 16, verses 2 and 3. O my soul, thou hast said unto Jehovah, Thou art my Lord. I have no good beyond thee. As for the saints that are in the earth, they are the excellent in whom is all my delight.